Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of the Tez News Podcast. I'm Dan Worth, Senior Editor at Tez, and I will be hosting this week to step in for Josh Morris, who is unable to host this week. But we've got lots of fantastic stories and analysis to talk through. So without further ado, let's join Callum Mason, our reporter, and we're going to talk through a couple of stories with him first. Callum, welcome to the podcast. Hopefully it's not too much of a shock to the system to be talking to me rather than Josh. Yeah. But we've got some great stories to to go through, so I'm sure it will be good. And um, we're going to start with an exclusive, actually, really interesting one, both from yourself and our uh, other reporter, Matilda Martin, looking at the um, levelling up sort of paper that was put out and some of the areas of investment in education and how actually it seems that where they're looking to target some of this funding is not perhaps going to go to the right places. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that and what it is that we uncovered? Yeah, absolutely, Dan. So so as you said, um, the government in its levelling up white paper earlier this year published 55 education investment areas. So these are going to be areas where they're going to target improvement interventions. And an example would be they're going to maintain to, to maintain and retain the best teachers. They're going to introduce these retention payments so that schools can, can keep the teachers that, that they want to. Um, and we got some data from Schools Dash, which is a, is a data reporting company. Um, and they've looked at these the areas that were selected, basically the the fifty five areas, and these areas are mapped onto to local authorities, so they they translate to basically local education authorities. And they've said that although these areas do tend to be um, the areas where where there's where's the, the the worst results or or the worst results at key stage two and GCSE generally, they've said that using the local authority that a school sits in can actually be quite a poor predictor of its need for support. Um, so what they're sort of implying here is that perhaps it would be better to choose the areas based on sort of wards or targeted at school level rather than going to, to local authorities, which can be quite a broad area. They've given several examples of this. So they've said that you might get one school and another school that are right next to each other, maybe a mile apart, but they're on two different local authorities. And the one that's in the education investment area might actually be performing much better than the one that's in the the non-education investment area. Hmm. Yes, yeah, so the data in the story is quite compelling in that point, isn't it? Like say some of the numbers of like, well, actually there are schools within these areas who are, who are way above the average and, and they're sort of now classed as being in these areas of needing investment. And um, it's interesting actually because my colleague Gronia, who is going to appear shortly on this podcast, is also looking at, um, because one of the other things in this, I know, is the selective sixth forms that they want to bring into these areas. And some people are saying, well, there already are outstanding schools in these areas and, and bringing more in will just dilute that and risks you know, undermining their funding structures and all these sort of things. So it, it does seem like a very broad brush approach. You know, I guess that's what you and Matilda really took from it as you were looking through this data. Was you, it's, quite, it's quite compelling, isn't it? Like the data to sort of suggest maybe this isn't the strongest strategy. Yeah, so they've, they've brought in quite a lot of examples, actually. And I won't, I won't name the schools, um, but they've said they've, they've drawn an example, say, of, of, of Manchester, which is an, an EIA. Um, they've got a school there that's rated as outstanding. It has a Progress 8 score of 1.14 meaning that its GCSE results, the, the pupils at GCSE overperformed by, by more than one grade per subject. Then they're saying, meanwhile, less than two miles away, for example, just over the border in Stockport, which is a separate local authority, that's not an education investment area. This school's rated inadequate. It's got a Progress 8 score of minus 0.56. Mm. I mean, that's just one example. But what they're saying here is you can't just, I guess, I guess what they're saying generally is that you know, disadvantage and, and performance, it doesn't fit like local authority boundaries. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't decide, oh, there's a local there's a local authority boundary. Fair enough, we'll stay on this side of this. It 
it is, is it specific schools and they're saying perhaps it should be better targeted it, it certainly does seem like that doesn't it and like you say those sort of those sort of examples they really they really shine a light on it and i think what's interesting as well is um again in, in, in Gorin's analysis that's going to be published soon on tes there's an interesting point where you could if you have there's a map in the leveling up pa- white paper there's a map showing these investment areas and you can literally if you draw an imaginary line across england that sort of sits just above the sort of london you know outer m25 area I think there's nine of the investment areas are below that line and, and the other, like, was it 45, 46 are, are all above and they're predominantly in the Northeast as well. And, and someone told us like, who's from schools Northeast said, you know, it, sort of, they were being kind of polite, but they were sort of, the insinuation was not one they, they welcomed because again, there must be a question, there are going to be great schools in those areas and just to get all that local authority needs this investment it does seem a bit, a bit broad brush. So yeah, really interesting story. Um, great work on that one. Moving on, and another sort of, again, story by yourself and uh, something I've also written about. It's this really interesting area, one that's, it's, and, you know, I think households, you know, individual teachers, this, this will be seeing this as well now, is, is energy prices and the price rises that are hitting schools. You know, some of the numbers are astronomical. Um, I was talking to a school leader just this week, actually, and they've, they've been now having to budget double for energy from sort of 40 to 80,000 pounds in this financial year. You've looked at some data from the NAHT um, about how schools are preparing for this. Do you want to give us the, the blunt home truth from that. Yeah, absolutely. So as you say, um, you and, and myself have, have written about this actually this year. So I think earlier we earlier this year we we did write in Tez about how this this could be coming. So some experts, sector experts were saying obviously these energy prices are gonna go through the roof. Um and some schools at the time were protected because they're on these these longer term tariffs which sort of shield them from price rises. But I guess the longer this this energy price crisis goes on, and it looks like it's it's in for the long haul now, the more schools who are on those tariffs are gonna are gonna move off them. They're, they're gonna end, and therefore they're gonna have to pay more. So it's really interesting to see this week this this survey by the NAHT union, uh, which spoke to I think more than a thousand school leaders, and they found um, basically that quite a lot of them were thinking that they were gonna have to reduce the number of teachers or teaching hours to deal with price rises. Um, so I think something staggering, I think 99% of leaders thought that energy bills would increase over the next 12 months. Sounds right. And I think on average, they were anticipating a rise of 106% in energy costs. So it's, it, it's a lot. I mean, it can be, I think we said earlier this year when we, we both wrote about this, that it could be the price of a teacher. So, you know, this is, um, it's worrying times for, for leaders and, the, and their budgets and their school business leaders as well. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, some of the some of the stats in that survey, like you say, sort of fifty four percent they were expect to reduce investment in equipment, fifty three percent reducing capital spending or maintenance, and forty percent reducing teaching assistance, and even fifteen percent saying they might reduce the number of teachers. Um, and that that does, in the fact, that's the lowest number. Sort of shows that's the last area school leaders want to cut, but some are thinking they're going to have to. Um, but all of it just seems it just it's just the worst time for this, isn't it? I mean, they're never a good time for a massive energy increase, but. At a time when we're trying to catch up lost funding, uh, lost education, at a time when, you know, just this week I've written about um, sustainability and how the government is pushing for this big sustainability strategy, but now schools are going to sort of be cutting, you know, money and going into their estates, into their maintenance, which is what, you know, energy efficiency in, in new, you know, new uh, double glazing, you know, something that might help all that. No, we're going to cut that. It's really tough for schools. I mean, you're talking to leaders a lot and, and now you're going to the NHT conference, so presumably expecting this to be on the agenda. Yeah, 100%. Um, I mean, we've written quite a lot in the past month. I think earlier this month, we, we did this piece about how sort of school leaders are saying that they're facing this perfect storm of cost pressures. So it's not just energy. We're looking at sort of building costs going up, catering costs going up. And as you say, it's a, a time when, when schools are trying to 
catch up, um, which which you'd expect would need more investment. I think when we when we spoke to leaders leaders earlier this month about that about that issue, um, they said, you know, if they if they are having to to manage the books in other ways, then things like the catch up won't won't be as quick. And absolutely, I'm going to be at the NAHT conference this weekend, and massively expect this to be a, a key talking point uh, as part of the motions and, and debates that that take place there. Um, and I think what a lot of people will be calling for is just is just more funding, to be honest. Yes, which seems like the, the perennial call, but does it ever happen? Well, if it does, then it gets subsumed by, by energy bills. So sort of um, no win there either. So it's, it's tough times for school leaders and that. But obviously you'll be at the conference hearing from them. Um, lots of good coverage, you know, content analysis, stories, news to come from that, I'm sure. So hope everyone keep an eye out for that. But Callum, thanks as always for joining us. And yeah, enjoy the conference. Brilliant. Thanks, Dan. Moving on now, and we're joined by Gronja Hallahan, our senior analyst, and we're going to talk through several stories that have come through our analysis desk this week, and one from leadership too. Gronja, great to be chatting with you, like in the old days, in the old forms of podcasts we did that some of our listeners will remember. Um, but this one, obviously the analysis section of the podcast, and we've got a few pieces we're going to go through, so let's crack on. First one actually is one that I wrote, so I'm going to talk to you about my own piece, um, which was out today, and it's looking at the how the pandemic has sort of shifted what's happening in ITT and some of the ways providers are approaching that. Um, I'll sort the, the premise that I actually started by talking to Professor Garrett Jones at Coventry University. This is where this all came from. And he was telling me about their course, which involves a lot of remote sort of teaching, not the, not the teaching in school, but the teaching about how to be a teacher. Um, so it could be done from anywhere in the country. That led me to talk to more ITT providers and how they'd adapted in the pandemic, because obviously they had to switch rapidly to remote teaching. And actually some of the things they just discovered were really positive. Um, You've obviously been through that in your own career. Um, what did you make of what I'd found and what the people were talking about? Well, I thought it was really interesting. So at first, that thought of doing things remotely, for example, take the phonics. So I obviously didn't teach phonics when I was a teacher, but there was lots of um, very particular parts of English that you, that you have to learn to teach. And I think being in the classroom and watching people deliver it before you deliver it yourself is really important. And I would have put phonics in that bracket. So... For example, like when you're doing practical subjects and when you're doing like drama and, and that kind of that side of, of teaching. And it really surprised me to learn that actually teaching trainees how to teach phonics and observing them teaching phonics via video link has all these benefits. And actually, when you think about when, you, when I was reading the article and explaining the, the reasons why, you know, you get to it's a recorded um, example. So you can go back and show it to the trainees again. You can observe lots of trainees at once you can geographically get to all those schools because it's all done remotely that's that's a huge benefit I thought gosh yeah like that is that does that mean this assumption and people talk about this a lot like when I talk to leaders I talk about the fact that you know people that train during the pandemic are at this disadvantage maybe that's just not true like there's when you when you consider it like this that they're that the the teachers are saying that their training of certain aspects has been better has been improved well, maybe this is something that, like the article suggests, should be retained and should be continued, even though we can go back to different ways of teaching now. Yeah, well, that was certainly what came across talking to people, was that the people in ITT, whether in higher education or in skits, are, are sort of, they're well aware of what they learn. And actually, they're not going to just sort of, oh, we're back to the new ways, we, get the, we can go back to the old ways, forget all the new ways. They're actually thinking, well, actually, it's better for mentors to do their mentor training remotely. You know, we can get, we can host events with expert trainers for, for our Trainees, and we can get you know loads more of them can watch it, and they can watch it on catch up, or they can miss a session and 
doesn't matter and it has more flexibility. And again, that was everything that struck me, particularly with, with Geraint's course in Coventry, but also with some of the others, is that by being more flexible, you potentially open up routes for more people to become teachers because suddenly they haven't got to move to train or they haven't got to drop everything at three o'clock to be at a lecture. They can actually watch it on catch up. And given we know ITT is numbers are not great, putting it mildly, really, shouldn't we, we need to find everywhere we can to appeal to more people who might otherwise think, oh, I can't do that because I can't give up that time or I'm not going to move across the country to a, a university course. But it's like, well, maybe now you can. And we'd have a more diverse like cohort of edu- tra- educators training, wouldn't we? Because you know, having that flexibility and saying, you know, we recognise that um, people want to do things part-time, things people want to do things in the evening because they've got commitments during the day. Training and giving up your job to train to teach can be really like financially prohibitive to a lot of people. So they don't, they don't make the move into teaching, even though they would make excellent teachers and should be in the classroom. And long-term, you know, it would financially benefit them, but it would make that training year that little bit easier if it was part-time or could be delivered in the evenings you'd get so many more people signing up i'm sure of it mm. well in the piece there's a couple of examples of, of people who um who sort of say exactly that that, that the courses they're on because they're remote have, met, have worked for them in a way that other courses just wouldn't so that kind of proves that point a little bit anecdotal yes but probably representative of a number of people um but like i say it's, it's a long piece i did a lot of research for it but a lot of people so hopefully if, if people are interested in this and I, I think it's something that although obviously people in itt particularly find it interesting hopefully people in the wider sector see it too as a you know, big trend that how the pandemics has changed education so worth a read if i do say so myself um but we'll move on now to another piece which i really again really strongly recommend people read this if they haven't already this is by sam friedman one of our excellent analysis writers who has taken the time to sort of look back at the pupil premium strategy, which he actually was heavily involved in putting together when he was in government at the DfE. So, you know, great expert insight on, on this. And he talks about how it came to be, what the purpose was, some of the hurdles they had to overcome. There's a great anecdote about how Michael Gove had to lean on Nick Clegg to get it through and said he'd give, kiss him in thanks for getting it through. Um, and he talks about the problems where he thinks, though, the issues now lie with it and how it it needs to evolve to make sure it remains relevant and useful for schools. Um, again, a really interesting piece. I wonder what you thought of it. I, I love the story. So I just, I didn't, when, when we read these policies, we read it in its finished form, but hearing how they had to push and pull and try and get, get what they wanted through. And the, you know, just the, even like the little things, like the fact that they got the, the, it was protected in cash terms, but not in real terms. And, you know, what, how we felt that in the years that have passed, like when we talk about the the cuts that we're seeing, you know, oh yes, you know, in cash terms, they've, they've kept the money, but schools have seen cuts and cuts and cuts because of this detail. And it's, I found it really interesting to read how it's, you know, how they managed to get it through in the first place, but also his ideas about what needs to happen next and how, what we're, what we're giving to these people premium students, it just isn't enough. And when you think back to how different things were, when it was first introduced to how things are now, that's a really strong argument. How different the, the cost of living crisis is, how, how much more pressure there are on lower income families. And really, the, it, the, what, what Sam keeps coming back to in that piece is like, have we seen a positive impact of this? Have we seen like, the results of it? And I don't think we really will until we get that, pre, that pupil premium funding to the right kids and I think it's it definitely needs a review. We need to look take what we've learned 
it's had an impact. Okay, that's great. Let's let's look at what what can we do to make this funding better and making sure that it's got the sensitivity to take into account the fact that pupil premium covers a huge number of children. And within that number, not all of them feel disadvantaged in the same way. And there are there there are those that are, you know are disadvantaged year upon year upon year, and they should be getting more funding. You know, it's it's so complicated. It needs a review and it needs to be looked at again. Yeah, absolutely. A great, a great summation there of the piece. I don't think any more needs to be said in some ways, but I say people should definitely read it because you say Sam really breaks it down and getting that frontline insight from, as you say, someone who actually was there, what they, what it takes. And like I said, it's not just people sat around a table dryly coming up with point, you know, point one point seven or say this, but it's real people having to sort of push and pull and negotiate and debate. That's great. Um, so yeah, really great piece. Um, definitely worth checking out. Moving on, um, piece you've written now, uh, which again, I think really useful and interesting for teachers um, and probably parents too, actually, but particularly for, for schools, um, which is about what happens if pupils miss exams with COVID-19. Now, of course, we're into the first year of or should be normal exams. And it looks like that's going to go ahead. So let's, let's be optimistic. But of course, it doesn't mean a pupil won't potentially get COVID and not be able to come in. And you did some sort of, you know, looking into this and what the policies are at the moment and found out that it's it's... Not too complicated, but there's some things that worth being aware of. Yes, absolutely. So it's really pleasing to see that they've got these plans in place. When we thought in-person exams were going to take place last year, there was nothing really that they that they, they put in to, to deal with this. And so it's really good to see that they've now got all the paperwork and made it easier for schools to report students who are absent if it's ill um, with COVID-19. And they've kept the procedure exactly the same as if a student was absent for for any other reason. So it's the same. There's no nothing new, nothing more complicated. They've kept it simple. This is great. This, you know, this is, I think yeah, this is a point for giving a, some stickers out for the DFE. This is, you know, they've done a good job here. So students unwell, if they come into the exam hall, then there's no need for a student to do a self-declaration. The school can just put in their absence and for the special consideration. But if they don't even turn up and they, they're calling in sick, then the People at home and the student both need to fill in this absent form. Then the school put in their their form for the special consideration and you're sorted, all done. And, you know, we, we've gone into a little bit of detail into the, in the piece talking about what do you do if you suspect that the student might have falsified their absence or is lying about it. It tells you what to do in those those situations and what to do if there's an outbreak, if you like, if you've got lots and lots of students who are all absent at the same time with coronavirus. So do jump on to the test.com and have a have a read of it. But yes, it should all your answers should be there. And do let us know if you're coming up against difficult, challenging situations with COVID-19 and your exam season. We'd like to to hear about what you're what you're seeing in schools in case there's something in there we've not covered. Yes, absolutely. And, and an interesting point, I think, as well, that we should touch on that you mentioned in your article is that they've they've looked to space exams at least 10 days apart in the same subject. So that it should be the case that even if a student missed one or two exams, they could still do at least one component and therefore get a grade because it's that 25% threshold of a, of, a, of an exam you have to sit to get a grade. So again, which again, seemed like a, a sensible strategy. They announced that in the past, they confirmed it's the 10 day thing. Again, a sort of a, a gold sticker there because it seems like a sensible solution. I mean, again, very interesting to hear people would say that's for some reason that's that's not good and it, and it gives endless waiting time between exams and it will drive students to, to distraction but i think in terms of avoiding covid issues it seems like a good thing is this a better thing because exams are spread out over a, a you know a wider space of time lots of students it seems particularly odd when you look at this exam timetable and they'll put 
subjects together, which seem like common combinations. For example, maths and science often get scheduled close close together. And teachers will say, you know, this is dreadful. The kids have had you know, hours and hours of exams all intensely put together. And maybe actually having them spread out over a, a greater number of weeks, perhaps this is the exam timetable we might see continued into the future. And that would be a good thing. Very interesting point. Yeah. Excellent. Well, moving on to a sort of not, dis, not you know, in a way, it's about crisis management, which I guess the pandemic, you know, the heart of it was absolutely all about crisis management. Um, and this was a piece that was pitched to me by a teacher who was in the international school sector. And now actually he's based in Australia. Um, but the lessons and the things I talked about are, are relevant to any setting, really. And it's about why crisis management should be part of your school CPD. Very interesting topic. Um, and she sort of talks about how, you know, you, you need to be prepared for a crisis. You can't react when it happens, which is a very good point. And, um, you know, you need to know who's in charge of, you know, doing the pupil role, who's in charge of talking to the local authorities, the police, you know, do you know what happens if, who's the point of contact to the gas company if there's a gas leak? I mean, again, this is school by school situations we're talking about, but it's a good point. And it made me think, you know, I can imagine in a busy school environment, things like that, where it seems so, well, certainly before the pandemic, I can imagine it would have seemed so far away, like, oh, that's happened to us, you know, but then one day it does. Um, and, And so you need to be ready. I just wonder, Gronje, what you thought about that when you, again, your time in school, when you've talked to school leaders in your role now, you know, do you, do you come across people talking about this? Did you ever experience a crisis in your, when you were working in, you know, was it dealt with well or was it a bit like we actually, we could have been a bit more prepared? You know, I've spoken to some school leaders about different crises that they've faced when they've been, been in school and it's the, the sort of stomach dropping, oh my gosh, I don't, I don't even know where I'd start with that. You know, I spoke to one school leader a few years ago about a time when they'd, they'd had a dreadful incident in their town and there were reporters trying to pose as students to get into their school and they were having to introduce checks on the gate to to verify the ID of the children as they were coming in and he said you know going through that experience made them rewrite all of their policies like rethink everything they hadn't considered how you know how far the the ripples of it would go like the crisis happened weeks ago but then they felt the effects of it for a long time after that. And I think it's that, you know, and it talks about that in the piece like that, not about um, making sure that everything's in place, like thinking things through. And if you don't do that before the crisis happens, then it's, you know, it's too late to do it in the midst of it, isn't it? Yeah, that, that's a really sort of telling example, isn't it? Like who who would think to prepare for, oh, we're now going to check if this person's sneaking and trying to dress like a pupil is actually a reporter. I mean, that's, but again, you know, you need to, these, these things happen, right? So, Unfortunately, you have to be aware of them. And, and yes, I think the piece does a good job of sort of hopefully for the leaders reading it, it was a sense of, um, oh, actually, yeah, we haven't done crisis management for maybe understandably for two, three years because it's just not been relevant. Or oh, we've been in a crisis, therefore, why would you do crisis management? But actually a crisis can be the bus crashing in the school park and, and you know, in the car park. It could be like I said, a gas leak. And that's one of the examples they give in the piece. So yeah, a really interesting piece. And hopefully for people, you know, that good sort of stop and think and a good, you know, because again, when I was pitched idea, I thought, yeah, that is a good, that is a good thing to talk about. And maybe now particularly worth talking about because um, crises seem to be happening quite a lot in the world at the moment. Um, but hopefully no more for, for a while. Um, but Gronje, thank you so much for joining us and chatting. We've, we've, we've gone through a real range of pieces there, but hopefully, you know, shows what, what the great stuff that's out on TES that we're producing every week that people are accessing. Yes, there's lots, lots of interesting bits out this week as we're getting ready for, for exam season, summer term, busiest term. Lots, lots to read and digest on there yeah and lots more to come as well so yeah that's great excellent well I hope everyone's enjoyed listening and as ever give us your feedback on social media and um, hope you will join us again next week <laughs>